You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Hani Farid, who is a senior advisor to CEP and professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Hani is, as you will all be aware, our in-house expert when it comes to digital forensics. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at what's been happening in the US. The US Supreme Court heard oral arguments in cases last week that raised questions about liability shields, which are afforded to tech companies under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So we're going to take a a closer look at the cases, especially the case of Gonzalez v. Google, um, and also discuss this concept of a liability shield. So, Hani, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It's great to be with you, Lucinda. So, I suppose to set the scene, it would be great if you could explain to our listeners Mm. what is Section 230 uh, for those who aren't aware. Good. So for to understand Section 230, we have to go back to the mid-1990s at the very early days of what is now today's Internet. There were two cases in 95, roughly around the 1995. One revolved around CompuServe, then sort of older version of what we would now call social media, but really just sort of a chat room type thing. There was a lawsuit against CompuServe for uh, defamation by a plaintiff. And in that case, the court ruled that CompuServe was not responsible for defamatory content on its services because it took this very hands-off approach to content moderation in which it did not do content moderation. It was a simply, their argument was like, we are the wire. We're like a telephone company that allows people Mm -hmm. to communicate. We don't get in the business of moderating content. Therefore, we are a distributor, not a publisher. We are not responsible, and the court agreed. Now, interestingly, a year later, in what is now the very famous case of Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy, Prodigy was a similar service to CompuServe. They also were sued for defamation, and they lost. And the reason why Prodigy lost is because they were doing content moderation. And they were found then not to be a pure distributor. And this seemed to the members of Congress to be a perverse disincentive to clean up your services. I mean, after all, why would you penalize a company for trying to keep their services from being, quote unquote, family friendly and reward a company that says, well, anything can happen. And so Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act was conceived and it said two main things. It said you cannot be held liable for third-party content. So think anything that anybody uploads to a YouTube, a TikTok, a Twitter, a Facebook, an Instagram, et cetera. And you cannot be held responsible for content that you take down, even if it is constitutionally protected speech. This is an incredible gift to the technology sector that makes its business in third-party user-generated context. It says, do something, you cannot be held responsible. Don't do something, you cannot be held responsible. 
And there we are today, now 2023, uh, three decades later almost. And this has essentially allowed these now almost trillion dollar companies to monetize user generated content because there is no liability for them or very, very little liability. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is fascinating. And obviously, this is a debate that's raging worldwide in a sense around sure. liability and who's responsible and how can they how can they be held responsible or should they uh, and obviously there are very divided polarized opinions on that so and it's something that has become an issue with both of the main parties in the United States on Capitol yeah. Hill as we've seen through various hearings and I know you've been in front of some of the the relevant yeah. committees at different stages so so this case well there are a few cases but particularly Gonzalez v Google can you give us the background the context sure. to that and, and and how it's been evolving through the court system. Sure. So in Gonzalez v. Google, which, as you said at the beginning, uh, we just had oral, oral arguments last week. A young woman is on exchange program, a university student in Paris. She is killed in a horrific terror attack in Paris. And the family, the Gonzalez's, are suing YouTube for material support of terrorism. They are claiming that YouTube knew or should have known that groups like ISIS, terror groups, are using and weaponizing their platforms and the YouTubes of the world not only don't do enough, but tolerate this type of material. And the this has been making its way through the courts. The Supreme Court heard the hearings and the question gets at the core of Section 230. Because what Google, YouTube will say is, look, 230 protects us very clearly here because this is user generated content. Now, by going after specifically terrorism, uh, the plaintiffs have said, no, this violates the, the material support of terrorism and you are responsible. And that was the oral arguments. I think they were muddled and we should talk about you know, how the arguments were on both sides. I don't think the justices really understood the technology. I don't think the plaintiffs understood the technology. And I think Google did a very good job of muddying the waters to try to protect themselves. Okay, so let's unpack that a tiny bit. So yeah. how did these issues get confused? Um, yeah, the, yeah. The, the issue of user-generated content and the protection of the, the host, if you like, of Google yeah. Um, and comparing that to this argument around material support for terrorism. So here's what happened. Plaintiff was arguing that maybe Section 230 gives you a shield for the 500 hours of video that are uploaded every minute to YouTube. But it should not give you a shield if you, YouTube, recommend a particular video to a particular user to maximize profit. So here's what you have to understand about YouTube. We tend to think of it as this just a platform that where you go watch videos. But what you should understand about YouTube is that 70% of all videos that are watched on YouTube are recommended by YouTube itself, either through the watch next after you watch a video and new one starts or the recommended for you along the right hand side of your browser. When you watch a video, here are other things you may like. And what plaintiff was saying is recommendation algorithms do not get protection from 230. Now, what Google's lawyer said was, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you go after recommendation algorithms, you're going to destroy the internet as we know it. Because when you do a Google search, we basically are making recommendations. We are rank ordering the world's information and we are putting, we are saying, here are the top 10, here are the next 10, the next 10. And if you say that recommendation algorithms don't get the 230 shield, well, then there is no 230 shield. Everything on the internet, from Wikipedia to a Google search to a YouTube to a Twitter, is based on recommendations, and you're done for. And in fact, the justices were very nervous about this. But here's the problem. There was a sleight of hand that the Google lawyers did. They 
conflated a Google search with a YouTube recommendation. So let's go back to YouTube now. Fundamentally, what does a video sharing site do? It allows you to upload a video and allows people to watch a video and maybe search for videos. Recommendations are at best a tertiary feature. You didn't have to. YouTube did not have to recommend a video after you watch a video. They didn't have to have a bar down the side that made recommendations, but why did they? Because it maximized profits. But that's a design decision. And I contend that you created a product that is faulty because you cannot distinguish between somebody going down a rabbit hole watching cat videos and somebody going down a rabbit hole watching ISIS videos to their own admission. And that means you have a faulty product. This is a product liability case, not a 230 case. And fundamentally, I think that the plaintiff's lawyers and certainly the justices didn't understand that. And the Google lawyers were very good at muddying the waters. We should have been talking about how YouTube, and by the way, this is not just YouTube, all the platforms have built a faulty product where they drive people into rabbit holes around extremism, around conspiracies, around self-harm, and they either knew or should have known their product was poorly designed, and they did not fix that. And now we have a liability issue that has nothing to do with 230. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is this is something that regulators and policymakers have been talking about for some time, the whole issue of amplification of algorithms. And obviously, in your submission, in your amicus brief, this was a part of the argumentation. Were there yeah. other issues that, that you identified in your submissions um, in support of the Gonzalez family? Yeah, the big issue here is that, so one of the things that the Google lawyers tried to conflate was, well, look, if I go to the New York Times or the BBC, they're making recommendations. You go to a website and here are the articles that you should read. But again, they're conflating issues. When I go to the New York Times and you listen to go to the New York Times, we see the same thing, right? But you can't say that about algorithmic amplification and algorithmic recommendations because what YouTube and TikTok and Twitter and Facebook are doing is they are vacuuming up every morsel of data from my devices, from my web searches, from my viewing history, and then creating these highly, highly targeted recommendations for me and me alone with one and one goal only, which is to maximize user engagement and add dollars. And that algorithmic amplification, of course, has serious privacy issues, but also fundamentally changes the nature of recommendations that does not have a correlate in the traditional media. And again, I think Google's lawyers were very effective at conflating and scaring the justices. And Justice Kagan had a fantastic line, which was both, I think, quite accurate, but also quite um, disturbing, which was she was questioning whether the, 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 the nine justices were in any position to make rulings on the internet because she said, and I quote, it's not like we are the nine world's leading experts on the internet. And that is true. But I think the response to that is become the nine leading experts on the Internet, not live in the dark ages, because the reality <laughs> is, is that technology has never had a more fundamental impact on our lives. And we are still moving very, very fast with all the AI generated content. We haven't solved uh, yesterday's problem and we already have tomorrow's problems to deal with. And the courts have got to get smarter about this. Yeah. Yeah. And legislators, too. I mean, um, yeah. A quick question before we get close to concluding, but in, in March 2020, you co-authored a study which analyzed YouTube's policies and 
it's it's self-proclaimed efforts around curbing algorithmic amplification, particularly around conspiracy theories. What were the kind of what were your sort of key observations and findings from that yeah, particular piece yeah. of research? Because I think it's relevant here. Yeah, it, I, I agree. It, it absolutely is. So the study looked at, again, how YouTube is recommending particular content. And what we went after in this case was specifically conspiracies. So think QAnon, uh, flat earthers, uh, 5G causes COVID, the, the nonsense that is proliferating through the internet. Mm -hmm. And what we found is uh, a few things. One, first of all, it's not hard to find these conspiracy videos. So YouTube, like, likes to hide behind complexity. They like to hide behind the 500 hours of video uploaded every minute. What we found is that it was fairly easy to find lots and lots of conspiratorial content, number one. Number two, we found evidence of a rabbit hole that once you started watching conspiratorial videos, you were significantly more likely to be recommended conspiracy videos. So really quantitative evidence to support the idea that YouTube pushes you into deeper and deeper corners of the internet, whether that's uh, extremism or conspiracies. And here's the really interesting one. YouTube, again, likes to hide behind complexity. They like to say, look, we have billions of users. We have hundreds of hours of video. We can't possibly moderate this content. But what we found is that 12 channels were responsible for the vast majority of conspiratorial content. There's a relatively small number of people who are responsible for a big chunk of our problem. And that is not unique to YouTube. Look at COVID misinformation on Facebook. It's called mm. the Dirty Dozen. 12 people responsible for more than half of the problem. Climate change is the same way. Climate change denial, a dozen people. There's a relatively small number of very, very bad actors that then get amplified by their followers. But the problem is not we don't know how to control this problem. The problem is that those dirty dozens, whether it's conspiracies, COVID, or climate change, are really good for business because collectively they have millions and millions of followers. So it's not that the platforms don't know who they are, it's that they're good for business. And so the dirty secret is this problem is not nearly as hard as the technology company wants you to believe. Not only are they creating harm, not only do they know about the harm, they know how to fix it and they are choosing not to. And I don't think that you get protection from the courts and from Congress if you know you are doing harm and you are intentionally doing nothing to fix the problem. Mm hmm. So the, the final question um, where you can you can provide all of the answers to all of this. But I mean, you know, given the direction in which the Supreme Court went, you know, how do you see this being addressed? You know, yeah. is it is it legislation? Is it, yeah, you know, is yeah, it a change yeah. in direction? And do you think that there is political will to, to do that? Yeah. yeah, that's the right question, Lucinda. So it's clear. I mean, look, the court took the case. So it's clear that they are hungry to look at the Internet, despite the fact that they're not the leading world leading expert on, on technology. I think in this case, Google is going to prevail. I think I think that the plaintiffs are going to lose. And, and that's unfortunate. I think, however, that the court send a clear message that they want Congress to act. In fact, several justices said, why is Congress not acting on this? Why is Congress not acting on this? And I do think that this should be coming from Congress, which passed 230 in the first place. And it's time to update the bill. It's been 30 years, guys. We couldn't have imagined the internet that we have today. And it's time to update this bill. I think SCOTUS essentially sent a message to Congress, take this up. And if you don't, we'll revisit this in the future. So my hope is 
we can do that. Now, the problem, of course, is that there is a lot of partisanship around 230. The right is claiming that the technology sector is anti-conservative, despite the fact that there is absolutely zero evidence to support that claim. Conservative voices dominate social media. The left's argument is that social media is harmful to individual societies and democracies. If we disagree on the nature of the problem, we can't agree on the solution. So the first thing we have to do is, is get out of our alternate fact universe and start talking about what is really happening on the internet in terms of child welfare, non-consensual sexual imagery, extremism, the sale of illegal drugs, and start having a serious conversation about how technology is being weaponized against us as societies and start thinking about modest steps that we can do to rein in this technology sector that has 30 years to get their house in order and they have not. So somebody has to act. And my hope is that Congress can do that. The good news is in your backyard, the Brits and the Europeans are getting are, are starting to pass some sensible legislation, as are the Australians. My hope is that we can look at that body of legislation, the DSA and the DMA coming out of Brussels and learn some good lessons and try to mirror some of that legislation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, there's still a long way to go in Europe, but certainly when it comes to terrorist content online and more recently the DSA and uh, DMA, you know, there has been there has been progress here. Um, and, you know, obviously it's in the interests of the US and Europe to cooperate and collaborate on some of this and actually arrive at sensible solutions. So um, I, I, know I you- completely agree. I can yeah. look, here's the thing to keep. I and, and I've said this to our legislators, US is 350 million people. We're about 5% of the world's population. We need to think very carefully how we're, inter- we're going to regulate an internet that impacts 95% of the world outside of our borders. And I think that requires cooperation with, with the with the Europeans, with Brits, with the Australians, with the Canadians, and then starting to think very carefully also, because that's a very Western liberal democracy world point of view, how does this impact Africa, Central America, South America, Asia, because those are very different countries and very different problems and very different uh, social norms. So we need to think very carefully how we are exporting our own idea of what the Internet should look like. Yeah, absolutely. But certainly, you know, action from politicians, policymakers on Capitol Hill would send a very strong signal to the rest of the world. So I know that you have been fighting that good fight for a long time. And uh, I hope that that we will see some progress. So uh, thank you very much for explaining what's been happening in in recent weeks uh, in the Supreme Court and uh, and for sharing your insights and knowledge as always. Honey, it's been a pleasure again talking to you and thanks so much for your time today. Lovely to talk to you as always, Lucinda. Thank you. Enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.